Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I am your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hey, E.K. Wimmer. I am Mariah Rose. And you are listening to a podcast about the 80s, where we talk about movies and events and books or whatever else is on our mind from the 1980s. You've made the right choice. You have made the right choice. And to those of you who are new, uh, thank you. We've gotten several new listeners lately, and we appreciate it. One thing you could do that is very helpful is to rate, review, and subscribe. If you go on iTunes and you follow us there, give us five stars. That's really helpful. Yes, so. thank you for those of you who have done that. Also, thanks to everybody on Instagram who shares. Oh, yeah, there's been a ton of people sharing, and we really, really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Uh, some very creative <laughs> story <laughs> shares, too, which we always love. Yes. Well, this week we are diving into a uh, pretty notorious film from the mid-80s. But before we get to that, let's go over some thrift store finds. What you got? Okay. Um, well, it's pretty straightforward this week. I found a kettlebell, which doesn't sound exciting. But since we've gone into quarantine, I've been trying to find like stuff so I could lift at home. Although I, I can go to the gym now uh, with a face mask and all the stuff. <laughs> so you could get pumped. Pumping me up. But I found a heavier kettlebell, so at least I have that at home now, too. Uh-huh, you got so. a home gym that's starting to uh, mm-hmm. develop. And then I also found a bunch of vegan cookbooks. Uh, we're vegan, so um, it yeah. was it was handy to find those. <laughs> those good finds, I guess. Uh-huh, yeah. uh-huh. Solid. <laughs> Totally solid. What about you? What did you find? I had a really good find this week. One that I don't normally get. Okay. Not VHS tapes, but cassette tapes, which I also collect. And I, for some of you may or may not know, especially longtime listeners, because we did an episode way back when, on when Prince went to Wyoming. And Mm -hmm. I am a very big Prince fan. And somebody got rid of... Your normal size. (laughs) Right, yeah. You're not very big. (laughs) He's... Uh, he's petite. He's very tiny. Okay. Anyway. But my love for his music is very large. Okay, okay. I misunderstood. <laughs> Somebody got rid of a lot of Prince tapes, and I grabbed them all. And what was mm-hmm. really weird is um, some of them look normal, but then, like, Sign of the Times, it was in two parts. First off, it was a volume one, volume two, and I was like, well, that's kind of weird, although my vinyl is two, you know, two vinyl set. But I thought it was a one cassette release, and then I opened it, and it had this weird colored label on it which also looks strange. And then I looked closer and it was um, a release from the Philippines. Oh. So the Signs of the Ti- Sign of the Times and Parade, the soundtrack to Under the Cherry Moon, mm-hmm. uh, were both uh, Philippine releases and I got them all. But And then a bunch of other ones. And then just the Minneapolis sound in general, like the time was in there, Vanity. So I was really excited, grabbed them all. And uh, yeah, that that was a great find. Very nice. I've been jamming out. Before we go on, I want to tell my bird story. Okay. Oh, yeah, you should. I mean, this isn't a thrift find, but it definitely... It's an important thing. It needs its own moment. (laughs) So bear with us. Okay, so last week I was doing the quarantine walk and talk with a friend on the phone. It was early in the morning. The sun had just risen. I had two, two out of our three dogs with us. And I kind of, I felt something like swoop by that was a little weird. And I was like, whoa, Sarah, to my friend, I said, a bird just swooped close and it landed right there. And then I realized it wasn't just a normal bird. It was a parakeet. (laughs) And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do it. I'm going to try the Snow White. And I stuck out my finger and the bird jumped on me. So (laughs) a bird in the wild. And you don't know me, but... 
for those who do know me, I do that to all birds all the time. I, I can verify when I met you as a teenager, yes. you were basically trying to get birds to land on your finger. My dream is that they will just come to my shoulders, not poop on me, and fly <laughs> away. Ace Venture, come to me, my animal friend. Exactly. That would be the life. So this bird uh, jumped on me, and so my friend Sarah immediately switched to FaceTime, and she captured a lot of photos. One of them is me, like, recoiling in horror. <laughs> you should post one on our Instagram. Okay. So I, I recoiled in horror, but recovered very quickly, and it, like, climbed up, fell asleep on me for a little bit, and then eventually he climbed up on my glasses, pooped on my face, and flew away. <laughs> And that's it. It was magical. The moment you've been waiting your whole life for. Could it? I mean, that's the perfect ending. There is no better ending. It really is a good ending. (laughs) Okay, well, that's a great transition. A maximum transition for Maximum Overdrive this week, 1986. Mm Would you uh, call this maximum (laughs) snorting of the cocaine instead maybe the alternate title i think is what it's called yeah perhaps (laughs) all right well it was directed by the one and only mr stephen king Mm -hmm. uh horror man himself although this is a little side note i don't know if you read up on this it is suspected and speculated and never been proven that much of this was actually directed by none other than george romero what because he was often on set, and I guess Stephen was kind of, this was his last year of cocaine use and was getting some treatment of some sort. So what's interesting is that people have not only speculated that, but they have made links to certain scenes and shots that are very Romero-like. And I don't know. I just thought that was an interesting little side note. I mean, I could see why Romero wouldn't take any credit. <laughs> But it was also written for the screen by Stephen King. Mm -hmm. So this is really, he's all in on this one and he gets to take full credit for it. Uh, Produced by the very famous Dino De Laurentiis, who has done anything and everything. He's, we don't need to go into all of that, but he will be important throughout this, this episode for sure. Uh, But you get those two together and magic happens. Yep. And that's what we get. Released July 25th, 1986 to the world. Wow, it's so weird that it's right around the same time we're recording this. Oh, yeah, it is kind of interesting. We didn't plan it. No. Whatever. Well, there you go. But um, this is a bizarre one. When was the first time you saw Maximum Overdrive? I don't remember. I've seen it in many times so i don't feel like i ever had an entry point or i can't remember it do you remember the first time you saw it same this is one of those tv movie kind of feels Mm -hmm. even though it's not a tv movie it was i felt like it was just always on you just saw it somewhere again and again and it's got that green goblin uh truck and that's just like oh yep that's the movie with the green goblin truck yep i don't think until last night because i haven't watched it in its entirety in a long time. Oh, it's been so long. But I have it on tape and we were going through stuff. Actually, you, a very decisive choice this week. Yeah. I had pulled out some stuff. I will say, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Uh, Julian Sons got the boot. But when you were flipping through some good ones, too, uh, the moment you saw Maximum Overdrive, you said, thanks for putting this in the pile. We don't need to keep looking. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to read the back of covers because that's tedious. Uh, that's so much work. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you can't be bothered with that kind of nah, stuff. 
I was like, this has a great cover. I remember this. Let's do this. It doesn't. I wish I had the other cover, though. I did show it to you, mm-hmm. which is the, the diesel cover with the grill oh, that's yeah. mangled and the body caught that's up amazing. in it. That's amazing. I wish I had that cover. I don't. Uh, that's cooler. The uh, The regular cover, though, is it's still so it catches you yeah it's definitely it's uh it caught me okay well yeah so that's interesting yeah i don't really remember this making like an impression front to back i've just it's always been there it's just one of those films i've always known Mm -hmm. Uh, but it always has stood out as a weird stephen king film and i didn't really think of it as a kid Mm -hmm. as an adult i was like oh it's because he directed it that's why yeah you know i I had kind of known there was a Stephen King connection. I mean, obviously, I knew it was adapted from his books, but I didn't really look into it or think about it to any great degree because, like, he's had so many, so many things adapted to film. I didn't realize until we were talking about it last night that this was his one and only directing uh, endeavor. So that really switched how I looked at it, which was kind of fun. Yeah, it is pretty interesting. So before we get in a little deeper let's kind of look at stephen king have you yeah, ever heard of idea. him <laughs> yeah I have. you know you know who he is yeah I've, so, I've heard of him. <laughs> sure i mean we all do but i'm gonna give like the quick and dirty version of his life because you can go look at anything like wikipedia and figure it out <laughs> yeah yeah he's I, he's got a pretty well documented life so i'm gonna just kind of give you a general rundown just to kind of put this all into place for yeah, us. Yeah, I think that would be good, especially because this kind of is snug there in the middle of his career. So mm-hmm. that's yeah. good. So he was born in 1947. He has sold, and I, I'm not even going to give a firm number because I've, I think he just released a new book. So I'm guessing he's <laughs> sold a billion since then, since I read this. <laughs> but he's, he's actually sold more than 350 million books. Uh, he's written over 60 novels. Again, I don't know how recently the information I've read has been updated. And he, I think he just released something like within the last week. I was thinking about his novel um, to film adaptation the other day. I used to have a, like an entire shelf on in my tape collection to mm-hmm. Stephen King movies. I think I maybe have three now because <laughs> they're so widely available well not only that i don't need them because i can find them anywhere but also i'm just not a huge fan of stephen king movies in general i think they're kind of cheesy we have like silver bullet which is a fun one which we did oh there's a back episode you mm. could go listen to i totally forgot we did that <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh the shining which is one of my all-time favorite mm-hmm. horror movies uh i have salem's lot Shout mm-hmm. out to Mike at Bad Taste. That's basically why I keep it. I do like it a lot, but oh, I feel I like it would be blasphemy to get rid of it at this point, being friends so with good. him. Um, and then I think there's a couple others that I have in there, but I used to have like every deep cut, every release. Mm. And I, it made me think, what film or what books have not been adapted at this point? Yeah, so he's had actual dozens of books adapted books and short stories i can't and even novellas. imagine yeah i can't even imagine so he's he's needless to say wealthy <laughs> he's also written over 200 short stories a lot of them are collected in various anthologies um interestingly i didn't know this his father abandoned his mother when stephen king was two. Oh, yeah and okay. so he was kill it, well, <laughs> obviously he has to have a little bit of torture in his past if he's going to be a writer. <laughs> right, yo, definitely, yeah. He was raised by his mom, and when he was a young boy, he discovered uh, Lovecraft. 
Oh, that makes so, sense. So, okay, yeah. So yeah. that was when he realized his career. He directly credits it with the discovery of Lovecraft. It's weird. Okay, so for people out there who are Stephen King fans, you know, that I'm acting surprised and this mm-hmm. kind of new research for you too. We both, I mean, everybody's grown up with Stephen King, but I was never a fan to the point of being like, I need to know his backstory and his biography and all that. It was more like, I read books growing up, I saw movies growing up, mm-hmm. and that's that. I don't know. I, it is kind of interesting because a lot of this, I just don't know his his history, really. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think I knew. I mean, I knew little bits and pieces of it, of course. But um, and again, go read like Wikipedia. And he actually wrote a book called On Writing, and it includes a lot of his life story. There's plenty of interviews. If you really want to like dig in, by all means, have at it, people. But were you a big Stephen King fan? No, I don't think I. The first Stephen King book I I read was actually under the pen name, the Bachman books. Oh yeah, the Richard yeah. Bachman thing. Yeah, uh, and he's he's had a, a couple other pen names as well. So that was the first King I ever read, and I've I've read maybe five. I read this. Ugh, <laughs> the unedited, so his version of The Stand this year, I listened to it. <laughs> oh, it it was a lot. It was a lot of my life. It was very, very, very long. Okay. Uh, it w- I mean, you know, it's Stevie King. Uh, so he discovered Lovecraft, and that's when he, like, started writing. He said, I'm going to be a writer. Lovecraft is problematic. Go look at that, too. How old was he when he first started writing? Very young. Okay. Uh, I think he started taking it seriously in, like, his teens. And he actually wrote his brother had, like, a little, um, I would liken it to a zine, uh, you know, cool. for those 90s Punk. kids. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't a zine, technically, but he, it was called Dave's Rag. And oh, no, that's cool. I know, it's so cool. And he wrote for that. And then he started writing articles and getting things published here and there. Uh, in 1971, he married a woman named Tabitha. She's also a writer. And he's still married. Is that who he had all his kids with? Yeah, there is a daughter. I actually didn't care enough to look into it. He has a daughter and it's weird in a couple timelines. I don't know if it's with somebody else or all with the same woman. Okay. He has two sons and a daughter. Um, and I think both of his sons are writers and his daughter is uh, for the uh, a minister for the Unitarian Universalist Church. Oh, I followed him for like a hot minute on Instagram and it was pretty funny, but it was mainly just his dog. Like he posts oh, his dogs a lot. That's cute. Or his dog, I guess. Yeah. Is, isn't it a corgi? Yeah. yeah. I mean, <laughs> why pretty, wouldn't you? Pretty cute. Yeah, so he started writing articles and short stories for magazines and then he started to write Carrie, tossed it away. This is like a legendary story. He wrote a few pages of it, threw it in the garbage. His wife, Tabitha, found it and said, I'll help you, like, find the female voice or whatever. You got to do this. Oh, wow. And he wrote it, and that's actually the first novel he had published. Carrie was? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know. I feel so dumb. Yeah. Like, I'm usually like, oh, yeah, totally. Duh. I just don't know my Stephen King, like, facts. Yeah, and it was a big deal. It was through Doubleday, and he... I'm sure it was a big deal. Yeah, yeah. he made some money, and then there was a film adaptation, so Ooh. he made some more money. Best of Palma film? Uh, oh. Dude, we watched Phantom of the Paradise not too long ago. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at it right now because I got the key release. <laughs> I love that movie. It's really good. It made me rethink De Palma in general. Yeah. 
But then I was thinking about Femme Fatale with Rebecca Romain and Antonio Banderas. And I was like, yeah, maybe I don't need to rethink his, his career. Just some stuff you got to let slide. Uh, so he wrote Carrie in 73. It was made into a film in 76. And in between that time, he found a little squeezed in a little Salem's lot. Wrote that, published it. And that was obviously made into a film. Then he wrote The Shining, made into a film. Jeez, then he wrote The Stand. Yeah, so it's 73, 75, 77, and 78. And then he just has actual dozens of films made from his his work. So That's wild. What a career. And he creates series. He does comics. He does like special things throughout his career where he works to kind of stay on the forefront of the world of literature. And he worked under, I think I said, three pseudonyms. And then we get into Maximum Overdrive. Um, that was actually an adaptation from <laughs> like a, a... You skip past all these, like, Carpenter's Christine and all these, you know, Kubrick's well, Shining. But then you're like, let's talk about Maximum Overdrive, the highlight okay, of his career. Well, let's do talk about The Shining because it, it does impact what we are going to explore today. Oh, it has to, especially, I don't know if you've ever seen this. Have you seen the trailer for Maximum Overdrive? No. Okay. Hmm. I'm wondering if we should talk about it now or later. Let's, I'm going to save that for the end of the episode because it's hilarious. Okay. It's bonkers. So so when The Shining was made, this was kind of uh, divisive because He, in a later interview, when asked why he decided to direct, uh, and it it does kind of, I think, stem from The Shining. So (laughs) to, like, split some hairs here, we've got his book, The Shining, and then we have Stanley Kubrick's movie, The Shining, and they're very separate, and neither of these men liked each other at the end. Well, their egos could not handle the same room. Well, and they, like went out of their way to offend each other, I think. Kubrick said Stephen's, Stephen King's writing was sloppy, and Stephen King said that Shelley Duvall's version of, well, Kubrick's version of Wendy is, like, the most misogynistic character of all time because mm-hmm. she's utterly helpless and stupid, and he didn't write a character like that. And that's <laughs> actually... I think that's super valid. That's interesting because I I do know, I know more about Kubrick, a lot more about Kubrick than than Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And Kubrick was really more saying that uh, the book didn't lend itself well to the medium of cinema and that there had to be changes made for it to work as a movie and that Stephen King was maybe not necessarily happy about that. And so I think that it became like this pissing contest between... I know what I'm doing as a director and then I know what I'm doing as a writer and neither wanted to budge. And so, yeah. yes, I agree to, to some degree. I think everybody knows across the board that when you adapt a novel to a, you know, couple hours, uh, you're going to lose a, a ton. I think that is universally accepted. All right. Well, we're actually talking about uh, Maximum Overdrive, oh, oh, okay. so we should probably rein this in because that's another whole episode. Okay. So he he um, said in an interview, Stephen King said in an interview that he had gotten some feedback, letters from fans saying, where were you? You know, what happened to your book? And I could see that with like <laughs> fans who were purists. Sure. Um, and so he thought, oh, Okay. So you want me to direct? <laughs> I mean, he just was like, 
maybe not I should be on set or, you know, like in contact more with the director, but instead I should be the director. So this was his time to shine. (laughs) (laughs) He also at this point was, as you kind of have hinted at, a full-blown addict. Not just drugs, not just alcohol. It was everything combined to the point that when his family intervened in the late 80s, they dumped out his, like, cigarettes, his booze, his pot, his cocaine, his, like, cough suppressants that he was just using Mm -hmm. as drugs. Like, everything a desperate addict would use. And they intervened, and he has been sober since. Yeah, that started, though, in the late 70s, around 78, is when he was drinking... He was drinking a case of beer a night. He he said that he was drunk while he delivered his mother's eulogy. Yeah, he was drinking a case of beer a night by 78, and then around 78, 79 is when he started taking... Started using cocaine very heavily mm-hmm. too, and those two basically went, from what I know and had read up on, just with interviews with him over the years, that by about '86, which is interesting because that's when this movie came out, is when he finally started to like chill out a bit because it was full blown. Like he doesn't even remember this time of his mm-hmm. life. He wrote entire books that he doesn't really yeah. remember. It's very similar to the blackout period of Alice Cooper, where it's mm-hmm. like. You're just creating and you don't even know. And it was interesting. I think it was an interview in the Rolling like Rolling Stone or something. And they said, how did you even manage to like keep a family together and write books and all that? And he was like, I don't know. You just kind of get through when you're an addict. And yeah, at this time of his life is very strange. And this is absolutely maximum overdrive is kind of like the beginning of the end. Like this is the peak of, yeah. of crazy. And so it is really interesting to think that he had already had this huge career under mm-hmm. his belt. And then, yeah, you've got this ego that says, well, I've had all these films adapted. And yet, um, you know, I haven't tackled that yet mm-hmm. on my own. And so I was going to save it to the end. I alluded to it earlier. But the trailer of this film is hilarious because it's him talking about what you're about to see and about how many people have tried over the years to direct a Stephen King movie but if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. Okay. <laughs> Calm down. And uh, it's crazy. It's as though the profession of director were a separate profession than being a writer. Weird. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but the story of Maximum Overdrive didn't come just out of nowhere. Like this actually had a seed and had kind of blossomed over the years and eventually got to the point of becoming a film, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it started with a story, a short story, Trucks, from the book Night Shift, and it developed from there. It actually started before there. Did you know that? it was um, That was a collected group of his short stories. Yeah, Night Shift. But the first time it appeared was in July of 1973 in Cavalier Magazine. It was oh, a right. short. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of later appeared in Night Shift. And then, interesting story, because I just sent it to my friend Tommy, is uh, there was later a film called Trucks. <laughs> That was adapted. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I think he'll enjoy it more than I did. I'll say that. It's definitely more up his alley. Okay, so the movie Maximum Overdrive um, starts when Earth has been (laughs) caught in the tail of a comet? This title card already makes you immediately question his ability to direct a film. Or to write. You're like, what? What? 
This is like one of the most prolific writers of our time. Yeah. This is a hot mess already. So Earth's in a comet tail and it's going to be there for eight days. Boom. So computers and mechanical stuff. So and some mechanical stuff, but not all mes- mechanical stuff begins to malfunction. Well, the um, ATM does because we get a cameo yes. from Stephen King while the ATM's calling him an asshole. And yes. then we, oh, dude, through this whole film, get so much ACDC. Yes. It is a if lot. If you like ACDC, you'll like this. This is, which is funny because... Um, I don't know when you're listening to this for listeners, but last week I was a guest on Bad Taste talking about metal and rock and, and horror. Mm-hmm. We didn't even talk about Maximum. Not one of us. There's four of us talking. Wow. Not one of us talked about Maximum Overdrive, which is hilarious because the entire soundtrack is ACDC. I will say yeah. this is definitely not a metal movie in my opinion. No. But it's got a There is a lot of soundtrack. metal. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Well, it's yeah, it is a metal <laughs> next one. But... The soundtrack, uh, Who Made Who, that came out is is a really good soundtrack. Um, I knew you'd be happy because you don't like a lot of 80s rock or 80s metal, but for some reason you really like ACDC. It's like your jam. So I was like, oh, you'll be happy about this. I immediately was curious about why ACDC did the whole damn soundtrack. It's his favorite band. Did you, like, read up on it at all? I just read that it was Stephen King's favorite band. (laughs) Okay, do you want to know some more of the story? Yeah, dish. Because you have to think about King, like, drunk and stoned and coked up out of his mind. Finally got to meet ACDC, who he loved, and said, will you be, like, in my movie? And they Uh said, no, we're not actors. Will you do the soundtrack? And they said, oh, let's think about it. Then he started to just sing a cappella. Several songs from beginning to end, and they were laughing so hard and realized he was such a super fan. They said, absolutely, let's do it. And so they did the whole entire soundtrack, and it ended up becoming a huge deal for them because several of the songs were massive hits. Yeah, yeah, so that's how ACDC got roped into this, which thinking about this coke-fueled film like i love that acdc was the selection it couldn't have been a better match that's good stephen king is a dork like he's 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 like a fringe outcast dork like the dork that we would have known and actually been friends with like he really was he's smart he's shy like introverted guy that just was into dark creepy stuff yeah yeah so the fact that he was just like gotta have acdc i I love love that dorky little story yes it's perfect Okay, so back to the story. Computers, machines, whatever. It doesn't matter. Don't get hung up on the details. We're not going to go into... I mean, this is really more about just Stephen King directing a film episode, honestly. (laughs) Okay, so we do need to talk about this bridge because it's a major plot hole. So initially, the the whole movie opens with this bridge, the kind that, like, lowers and raises to let ships through. Drawbridge. Yes. Is Is that what it's called? I mean, if you're like a prince. (laughs) That was the drawbridge. So it malfunctions. It doesn't malfunction. It's taken over in some way by something mysterious, comet related. Why these machines? Why would it kill cars? Why would it? I mean, this machine or the drawbridge malfunctions and kills cars. (laughs) And then the rest of the movie is about cars. I think it's because the moral of this story is total and utter destruction. Maybe. I, at several times, thought, does this rival the junk man? No. 
Okay, good. No. I'm glad that you didn't even hesitate on Firm, that. Firm, no. That is cinema history in the mind of my <laughs> spouse over there. If you guys haven't, go back and listen to our episode on the junk man. And if you have not seen it, <laughs> one million cars holds die. the record for most cars destroyed in a film. And, but this had to have come pretty close. Yep. So let's go to this truck stop. There's a truck stop in we're in North Carolina. I don't think that matters. Whatever. And just keep that in the back of your mind. Billy, who is played by Emilio Estevez. Oh, Emilio. Man, it was so good to see him. Not his best role, but... Oh, no, we'll get to that. He was riding high. Okay. This made me think of one thing right away, and it's because of what he was coming right off of. What? You didn't think of it, too? What did he come off of? Repo Man. Oh. And it made me think... We were asked when we very first started this podcast by mm-hmm. a friend, will you cover Repo Man? And we were like, yeah, of course. We never have. Oh. And it's be- I'd never even think about it. I forgot about Repo Man. We should totally do Repo Man. Okay. What do you think? Should people like chime in and leave a comment? Like <laughs> Let us Instagram know. us and say, yeah, you guys should do Repo Man. Or Repo Man versus Golden Child. No, 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 don't go there. Okay. Okay. Anyway, it just made me think of Emilio Repo Man era, and it made me happy. So Emilio plays Billy, who is like a parolee who has a job at this truck stop. It's one of those truck stops that has like all the stuff. It has like a game room. It's got a little restaurant inside while you're filling up. So he's there. He's working as a cook. He cooks eggs, whatever. (laughs) We know he can do that. And things begin to malfunction. So like the electrical knife attacks the waitress there. Another guy dies via gaming machine like oh, a pinball I, machine i love the guy who the gas stop work stops working yes and like a gun he just turns it and looks down the barrel of the gas pump and then it sprays him in the eyes and i got satisfaction from that scene and he becomes blinded also does gasoline <laughs> blind you i don't feel like it does I don't know. I we'd, we'd have to take that to a specialist. I don't want to. I don't care that we much. Should, you know what we should have a segment on on yeah. this podcast? A phone a friend. Where, <laughs> when we like are really um, stumped. Oh. I was thinking about it with our uninvited episode with the uh, sextant being a microscope. <laughs> I was like, that would have been a perfect phone a friend uh, yeah. moment. My sister-in-law is a bioinformaticist. We she would have been able her. to answer it. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, anyway, yes, so he sprays himself in the eyes like an idiot. Okay, let's skip ahead to there's a Little League baseball game happening. Oh, I love this scene. Oh my gosh. So much. This is ridiculous. It's... There is... This is a graphic film. This is so so much death and destruction. (laughs) Yes, it's almost all that this film is, honestly. This is the film you would make while you're on cocaine. Like, (laughs) more death. More explosions, more destruction. And then, like, loosely link it together with a storyline. Okay, let's get to the baseball scene. Okay, so we got some Little Leaguers. <laughs> this is after, right, um, the can start shooting out of the vending machine? Well, that's what happens at the game. Oh, no, it isn't. There isn't even... You can Are you talking t- about the steamroller? <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about the steamroller. So, well, first, this <laughs> the pop can... It starts shooting out of the vending machine. It like a pop can bores a hole in the team like 
The coach? Coach's head. Yeah, he dies. Cool. And then it just starts shooting out across the field and, like, killing children with <laughs> Well, definitely, like, just assaulting them. No, uh, they're all, like, dead. Oh, are they? Yeah, Deke's the only one who li- lives. Don't even get me started on the name Deke. It makes me very upset. I'm so happy you wrote down the name. Ugh. So... Deke is the little boy who. How do you spell Deke? It's D E K E. Okay. Wow, that's lazy writing. Okay, so Deke is watching this all unha- unfold. He's unhappy. He's down to him and another boy. The next boy gets r- literally steamrolled. <laughs> okay, that I read. I don't, I'm sure I'm getting this wrong, but I read that he wanted it to be like the blood should paint the entire. Uh, baseball field oh and that it uh, the blood bag like went off too early and it looked like the kid's head exploded and he <laughs> was like this is the best thing i've ever seen and they said you have to cut that scene you can't put that in there <laughs> which is hilarious because the scene that still made the cut it's so bad it's still so bad it's real bad i want to see the unedited like director's cut i would of watch maximum that, yeah. overdrive if it exists let me know holy cow and so we got to meet an, our next character. Deke survives and runs away. Yeah. Let's skip to there's a hitchhiker. She is a very fashionable hitchhiker. It's the 80s. She should know better than to hitchhike. But she's taken up a, a ride with a Bible salesman who's What's, a big person. She's got a man's name. Brett. Brett. Her name is Brett. And they drive and end up at the gas station where Emilio works. And this is when things start to, like, really happen. This is when we start to go, wait, are machines alive? What did you think of Emilio in this role in general? Uh, Emilio. <laughs> I don't. Okay. Because he wasn't the first pick. Do you know who the first pick was? Who? Don't tell me it was Charlie Sheen. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, but he got cast because his his dad, Martin, was in the dead zone. Mm. And Dino, De Laurentiis, wanted him. Mm. Like, he was like, no, let's just go with Emilio. Stephen King was totally convinced that the perfect person to be the lead. Who? Bruce Springsteen. A young and upcoming musician. (laughs) Who Dino, this Italian producer, had no clue who he was. And he was like, no, I'm not casting a guy named Bruce Springsteen. No. We're doing Emilio because Emilio was a, a Brat Packer. He had a career. And uh, oh Stephen King, some of the cast members said that the moment Emilio was cast, this is when Stephen King just gave the, like, the middle finger to the film because he was convinced that Bruce was the perfect cast for this. What? Which is funny thinking about how things panned out. Okay. But anyway, yeah, that's uh, pretty interesting. We also have to meet two more characters. Okay. It's a newly married couple. We've got uh, Connie and Curtis. Most importantly, Connie is played by Yardley Smith, also known as Maggie Simpson. You know her well. Don't you listen to a podcast? Yeah, she has a podcast for sure. (laughs) Yeah, she's got such a great voice. Small Town Dicks. Yeah, it's great. Is that what it's called? Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Um, So, yeah, Yardley Smith is, is in this in case you want to drop some names, <laughs> she's the way to go. Oh, you want to drop some names? Speaking of Emilio, because he, mm. he was like hot shit at this time. Okay. They gave him a condo by the beach while he was hanging out. And uh, the lead who plays what? Greg? Brett? Brett. The girl? Yeah. Brett. Yeah. She, in an interview, she was talking about it because she was like, I didn't realize he was such a big deal. 
And he, all his like celebrity friends would just fly in to hang out with him. Wow. Like Tom Cruise and stuff. I but bet that doesn't still happen. You know who he was dating at the time and who was like visiting every weekend? Who? I never knew this. Demi Moore. Oh, yeah. They dated. I didn't know that. Well, you're way more into like celebrity no, couples. I'm, no, I'm not into celebrity <laughs> gossip, but it's a weird portion of my brain that categorizes it perfectly. You seriously know all celebrity gossip. If at I all hear times. it, it stays in there. I don't know anything. Okay, well. Okay, so Connie, Connie and Curtis, they're in their car. They discover, whoops, every other vehicle is killing people. But weirdly, <laughs> their car never attacks them. I don't understand Yeah, this. what's that all about? They use it to escape the other vehicles, but for some reason, their car never turns on them. It's as so, though the person writing and directing this film hadn't really thought it through. Weird. So they make it also to the truck stop. So we've got almost everybody stuck at a truck stop. Truck stop. I feel like this film basically is just a terror, like... Electric knife terror, uh, gasoline pump terror, and ACDC. Mm-hmm. Just scene after scene. <laughs> it's really remarkable because I found that when I was taking notes, I was like, oh, it's uh, pinball terror, arcade yeah. terror. It just is constant. It's it's relentless. Like, Well, it's weird because they do find time to create a love story. There is no need for this love story. (laughs) And she keeps calling him a hero throughout the entire film. Did you catch that? Yeah, so the hitchhiker, Brett, decides that she's going to be with Billy now. And she's she's attractive enough that parolee Billy's like, yep, we're together now. I'll do those dishes. Yeah, and he does those dishes like two hours later. (laughs) There's no time wasted. Uh -uh. Um, In the interview I read with her, too, she was saying that uh, Stephen King, not only was he pissed about Bruce Springsteen not being the lead, (laughs) but that so many changes had been made to the script. And one of them was um, she was supposed to be like a tomboy, like dressed like a man almost. Yeah, she was in the beginning. And then I think it was Dino that was like, no, you need to sex her up. And made her wear like the skirt, the mini skirt or whatever. Oh, that's like by the end. So she starts out in like a hat and a men's suit. And by the end, she's in a mini skirt. (laughs) And Stephen King was super pissed about it because he wanted her to be more androgynous. And um, so it was like one thing after another that he couldn't control and that he was just getting irritated by. And then, so the only character we have who isn't at this truck stop is Deke, the the boy. (laughs) And he, he has this long long pilgrimage where he bears witness to the deaths of all of these people in creative ways from vehicles or like machines of some sort should we stop on one because we need to okay go for it a lawnmower terror (laughs) because this is well documented so the people who already know the history behind this film bear with us but for many of you listening right now who are not well versed in the history of maximum overdrive mm-hmm. this will be new information that is the lawnmower scene mm-hmm. is infamous because <laughs> so the lawnmower needed to go faster and be crazier and stephen king was like yeah let's make this crazy the uh cinematographer at the time who was this highly respected italian cinematographer who had done a bunch of stuff already uh was to shoot this scene had his concerns because the blades were still on the lawnmower okay his name by the way was armando uh namuzi okay just so we give him credit but way to go armando 
Namuzi, who didn't speak English also. Stephen King would just come up to him and, uh, like, come at him for minutes on end. And his assistant, the camera's assistant, said that (laughs) Namuzi would just uh, nod and say yes over and over and not have a clue what he was asking. Oh, my gosh. So, anyway, he was this, like, highly respected cinematographer. And Stephen King's saying, no, we're not taking the blades off the damn lawnmower. And the cinematographer's saying, look, you can't even see the blades in the shot. And he said, I don't care. It needs to be real. And I want it to go faster and stronger and everything else. So the remote control thing started boosting the speed and the power and all that. It didn't work the first time. Didn't work the second. They had this like splint or this piece of wood that was behind it to help it. By the third time, it takes off, splits. And as the assistant, camera assistant said, this is like, one billionth of a chance this would happen. A huge splinter shot into the eye (gasps) of the cinematographer. Oh, no. Bleeding out everywhere. They said in Italian he was screaming, shoot me now, shoot me now. (gasps) They bring in a helicopter. Oh, my gosh. He can't speak any English. Did he die? No. So they rush him to the hospital. He goes through two surgeries. Production stopped for two weeks. And he comes back with an eye patch because he lost his oh, eye no. due to the scene. He's a pirate now. <laughs> He's a pirate. He's an Italian pirate. Uh, but he later sued, obviously, sued Stephen King for being totally inept and was like, he doesn't have a clue what he's doing as a director. He has no clue how to direct a film. Oh. No clue for safety. He sued like 17 people. They settled out of court for whatever millions fair enough he lost his eyeball absolutely but it was a notorious scene as yeah the that was uh, the lawnmower scene had a quite a backstory to it interesting because i was gonna say the most important scene to me was the dog killed by the toy car (laughs) oh that was a pretty cool scene how how does this work that doesn't make sense anyway uh so trucks are killing people at the truck stop blah bitty blah they all begin to swarm. So trucks come in from everywhere else and swarm like it's their beehive. <laughs> this is so dumb. Yeah. But like dumb in all the right ways. Yes. And then... <laughs> you know what Stephen King said? I don't know how to direct actors, but I can direct trucks. <laughs> that is a quote. I think that's good. <laughs> I kind of agree. Exactly right. Nailed it. Way to go. <laughs> So Emilio and Brett have now humped. They're like a full-fledged couple. They eat cupcakes. Even though just outside of their little like room, there are swarming trucks. They're eating cupcakes and flirting, which I mean, maybe. Who knows? This is so dumb. And then they this is an important scene because they talk about a place, an island where there are no motor vehicles allowed. You made a good point immediately. How is a boat not motorized if a car is? Well, they do end up taking a non-motorized boat later. Oh, do so, they? It's mm-hmm. a sailboat? Yeah. Oh, but, way to really tighten up that uh, plot. But even though there are no motorized vehicles, I'm guessing on this special island, there's electricity. No, he says there's not. Remember? No. He says there's like no vehicles, no nothing allowed. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. This is lock solid. I feel like you could just go into the forest and, like, wait it out. You know the only thing that is on that island, though? What? Spoiler alert. ACTC. <laughs> nice. Okay. So, Bible salesman's killed. They're the, like, owner of the truck stop reveals that he has an arsenal below. He has a bazooka. How convenient is that? When it's you're not a bazooka. Truck. I looked it up, and it's, like, an M something 
okay. something or other. Well, nerds, I don't care. M62 Rocket Launcher J900. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> That's not a real thing. I just made that up. <laughs> it was very convincing. <laughs> Um, they try, they just are all trying to, like, find a way to get out. The boy makes his way in. Deke finally gets to the truck stop. And he gets there just in time as a, it's like a little trolley with a machine gun on top also arrives. That, yeah. It's a jerk truck. It is a total jerk truck. It's going to shoot everybody down, but then... Beep, 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 beep. It's a Morse code from a bulldozer. Deke just so happens to speak Morse code. I mean, it was a leap of faith from the trucks that somebody would speak Morse code. (laughs) Totally. But, you know, Deke does. And he says that the trucks will not kill anybody if they refuel them. Oh, my gosh. This film. Did you catch yourself several times being like, how did this even... Yep. How did Stephen King find himself in the position to convince Dino De Laurentiis to direct a film? I, okay, so here's the thing. I looked into it a little bit because I was equally confused. Yeah, because guess what? You and I wrote the most amazing story ever for uh, April Fool's Day. Dino <laughs> yeah. De Laurentiis, get on it. <laughs> We'll direct it. Is he even alive? I think he's dead. Nah. Okay. Anyway, I was looking into it, and it's because Dino Dino had uh, bought the rights to several of Stephen King's films, and they had done, you know, a couple of... They had done one film already, but then uh, they did Firestarter, I think, was the one they first did. Mm. And this is interesting because Firestarter was shot in North Carolina also, and... Dino really liked that location because I think it was cheap. You could kind yeah, of do whatever you Yeah, I think they have some deals. Yeah, so he, he did Firestarter. And then he let Stephen King do his first film adaptation instead of just like a novel, like write mm-hmm. the screenplay for The Cat's Eye. Or oh, Cat's yeah. Eye. And Stephen King had such a good time that he one time uh, in passing told Dino, you know, I'd love to direct a film. <laughs> and Dino said... Yeah, why wouldn't you? That sounds like a great idea. And that's how he got uh, the ability to direct an entire film with no knowledge or awareness of what a director is or how to direct. Wow. But that also, Mm -hmm. because these all three of these films were shot in North Carolina, brings me to this week's fun fact. Yes! What is it? This is a weird one. This oh. kind of a deep cut that mm, somebody like me would know, but I don't know if this is one. This wasn't even an IMDb trivia. Oh. I feel like I should go add it to IMDb. Whoa. Okay. So when I heard that these were all shot in North Carolina. Yes. And it was shot by Dino De Laurentiis. Okay. I thought of one film and one film only. What? This was done in 1986, correct? Mm-hmm. There is one film that I go to in 1986 that was produced and put out by Dino De Laurentiis. What is it? Take a wild guess. No, I don't want to. Trick or treat. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And my fun fact is... What? Guess where trick or treat was shot. North Carolina. The exact same town. Wilmington, North Carolina. Weird. Same year. So this was all shot. So when you're Wait, looking at this, does Dino own property there, and he just didn't want? Yeah, to they travel? had a studio there. So, but does he have like a house there? And he's like, eh. I am sure he has a house okay. there because for years they shot it. But 
Yeah, so I was like, wait, this is all too familiar because I got a press pack recently. I have the original um, press pack for for Trick or Treat. Mm -hmm. And I immediately recognized Wilmington, North Carolina. And I was like, wait a minute. So this was happening at the same time or very close to the same year, which blew my mind. And this isn't part of the fun fact, but this is an addition. Okay, bonus fact. And probably would have been more interesting for you, knowing you. Oh. Want to know what else was happening at the exact same time? What? Blue Velvet. Ooh! And all of them were there, and they all hung out. No! Yeah, the uh, actress that plays Brett yes. went out for lunch with, you know, Laura and everything at Laura Dern, and they, like... <sighs> said that David Lynch, all of them were there, like they were hanging out because they were all making movies together at the same time. But nobody realized who like David Lynch was. And then basically once everything came out, they were like, holy shit, we were all hanging out together. That guy's cool. (laughs) And we made made a lesser movie. So (sighs) the more you know in North Carolina cinema history. We haven't covered any Lynch. For a reason. Why? It's precious. It's too precious. We haven't covered any John Carpenter yet either. I'm, all right, all right. I don't I know it. how I feel about that. Oh, okay. Uh, so Emilio gins, begins to pump gas. <laughs> Emilio, go- what? Nothing. Gas. He's like you at the gym. He's gas. He pumps gas. And they run out of gas, but don't worry. There's a tanker ready to refill. Boom. <laughs> more gas. And uh, whatever. Trucks it's, trucks explode. Trucks end up running over the AC, gas station. AC blast the whole time. <laughs> I seriously, we're not like. I I do like this film. Oh but yeah. I'm not gonna try and like go to bat for saying there's much here. No. Nope. <laughs> seriously, things blowing up uh, and ACDC playing. And if you like that, you'll love this film. Totally. <laughs> it's like awesome. Yep. And then they <laughs> escape the truck stop because it's totally and completely destroyed. And it all blows up. And then they hop on a boat. But wait, before they hop on a boat, one of the truck drivers, uh, he goes to steal a diamond off a dead woman's finger. Is this not one of the best death scenes in the whole it's film? good. I love this scene. This made me laugh so hard. Yeah, and then the semi with the uh, right, with the green goblin, green yeah. goblin's face runs him over. It, but it, it's great. Greed will get you guys. That's the moral of this story. <laughs> it's the green goblin. It was all yeah. It was all Ugh. an analogy. And so everybody else hops on a boat to go to this magical island. Oh, but you would think this is the end, and then we get a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> title card at the end. So. Which, completely outdoes the first title card. Oh my gosh. So it says two days later, they found out that there's a UFO who's been hiding in the tail of the comet. (laughs) (laughs) And it was destroyed by an, an in quotes, weather satellite from Russia who had (laughs) laser cannons and nuclear missiles. (laughs) And six days later, everything was clear and the survivors survived. Bye. Oh, I really like this film <laughs> so much you liked it i liked it but would you like to know what the critics said i would love to know what the critics said 15 percent on rotten tomatoes <laughs> oh, five out of suck. ten on imdb you guys suck it got two golden raspberry nominations for actor and for director but only lost out to under the cherry moon to prince oh snap bring it back to <laughs> earlier episodes and uh Paul Atanasio from the Washington Post wrote, 
It's like sitting alongside a three-year-old as he skids his Tonka trucks across the living room floor and says, we, except on a somewhat grander scale. I read another uh, critic's review from the time that was like, well, uh, the biggest hack of the era had just made a film. It was really funny. <laughs> okay. Well, this had a $10 million budget. Woo. It made $7 million. Oh, no. You know what's funny and Ten- insane? What? Is that, remember I talked to you about the trailer, how Stephen King, like, high on whatever concoction he had, is looking at the camera saying... If you want it done right, you do it yourself. Yeah. Okay. That was his contribution. This is how he won up Stanley Kubrick. Which this is probably, (laughs) I'm probably not the first person to come to this conclusion. I would be very curious to know your thoughts on this. Of all the Stephen King movies I've ever seen my whole life, I am not joking. This is the least Stephen King filling film I've ever seen. Yeah, I would agree. Stephen King movies feel, you know it right away. You're like, oh, this is definitely a Stephen King film. Uh-huh. This does not feel like a Stephen King film, and he directed it. Well, it's because he got caught or up. George Romero did. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I, he got caught up, I would say. There's there's too much to keep track of in a way that he probably wasn't used to keeping track of things. Just the feel, though, the dialogue and everything. It doesn't yeah. feel like a, a King film. No, I agree. And what is so fascinating about this is, you know, he's talking about, he already hates Kubrick. He's going to diss on everybody, De Palma, John Carpenter, everybody who's already done adaptations of his films and say, nobody's done it better than I can do it. Mm. Two weeks after this was done mm-hmm. and, and released, two weeks after the release, you want to know what else premiered? What? His adaptation of Stand By Me oh. by Rob Reiner. Do you want to know what that pulled in? What? $52 million. Oh, my god! I will say maybe he wasn't the best director for his own films. Oh. Actually, side, side note, he is he witnessed a friend being killed by a train when he was a kid. He doesn't have any recollection of it. But <laughs> okay. I, I mean, it's That's interesting for, for Stand By Me point of view. Interesting. Yeah. So I don't know if this is true also, but I, I read a fact. I haven't checked this. That the title card at the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. the comet passes on June 19th. Mm-hmm. And I think that he was hit that later, the huge famous car crash or car accident that he got in mm-hmm. when somebody hit him was on June 19th. It was. It and was I think in that's June. insane if that's true. Uh, I don't know that that's really insane. Beyond the exact the f- same month and day. Well, but it wasn't like it was a comet. No, but just that's a weird coincidence. But it was just some guy who was distracted by his dog who hit him. But he did actually, his lawyer and some other people bought the van that hit him. Oh, really? Yes, because they were afraid that fans or like weirdos would buy it on eBay. Oh, yeah. So they bought it and destroyed it. And he was later bummed because he wanted to, I guess, like... Attack it with a sledgehammer or something. Oh, really weird. Know. That's strange, but I I know I've read interviews over the years with him talking about post accident mm-hmm. when he was on all these painkillers and it's completely high and doesn't remember anything. Also, sure. he wrote um, like Dreamcatcher, which mm-hmm. he's like he has no memory of and he hates the book. He's like it's a hot you know it's a hot mess. Also, which yeah. the movie by the way is highly entertaining. Ooh. I. I, that's probably if I did have that on VHS, I would keep it. I really do enjoy it. <laughs> I think I fell asleep. When the whole it. like uh, poop monster thing in the toilet and then the snow snow. That's great. Anyway, it made me think about 
his time of making Maximum Overdrive because mm-hmm. in interviews, he's totally owned up to it over the years and said, I was, you know, I don't even remember making that film because I was so coked out. And mm-hmm. it's it's a horrible movie. I had no business making a movie. Okay. Somebody asked him, why did you never direct another movie? And he said, well, I'll watch Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> but uh, he wrote right before he sobered up in 86 or around that time. The last book he wrote was The Tommyknockers. Mm-hmm. And he also said, like, that's just a horrible film or a horrible book. And I think that there was a good book in there. But there's so much cocaine that I, you know, I, I would have to go lost. back and revisit it. And it's just interesting to think about him knowing his own story and his own struggles with addictions where he's prolific and he's putting out these books or films in this case, Mm -hmm. but also very self-aware to say like, I, you know, man, that's, it is what it is. Yeah. I mean, perhaps also it's a great way to write off some flops. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I mean, there is that. He did write Needful Things. That was his first sober book after this. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Well, that went over well. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean... He's he's doing okay one way or the other. And honestly, like, Maximum Overdrive, was it an amazing film? And as far as the world of cinema goes, not so much. But have I seen far, far, far worse movies? 100,000%. If you want to go back, if you like Stephen King, we've done a few now. We did uh, Cycle of the Werewolf slash Silver Bullet as an episode, which we compared... The book and the movie. I forgot, but now I remember. <laughs> you know one that we haven't done that Stephen King was involved in what? that I'm surprised we haven't done? Creep Show. Oh yeah. <sighs> I love Creep Show. We should do that sometime. Okay. Anyway. Well, this is uh I'm I don't know if you, if we have to debate this. Uh, Laser Graves approved. Oh yeah. <laughs> Maximum you wanna overdrive see rules. Ten thousand <laughs> semis destroyed. Yeah. Heck yeah. While listening to ACDC. <laughs> What what problems no do you have yeah. here? All right. Well, that's all we got for you. Like we said earlier at the beginning, thank you to everybody who's been listening lately and sharing our podcast. We really appreciate oh, yes, it. Yes, so much. Because we're just doing this to be goofy and fun and entertain you guys. Um, check out our friends. There's so many great podcasts out there. We're not going to name them all, but we share them constantly in our feeds. Mm-hmm. Please support podcasts because we're all just doing it for the love of cinema. If you want to follow us, we're at uh, Laser Graves on Instagram. And then also, if you want to just check out our our podcast, we're anywhere and everywhere you get it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're on iTunes. Like we said earlier, please rate, review, subscribe. Absolutely, please. Uh, But we're everywhere else. uh, Spotify, Podbean, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then if you want to follow us on our personal sites, I'm at Death at 33 RPM. I'm at Mariah Rose Wimmer. And that's all we got for you this week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye.